the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of KDOW or its management owners or advertisers and should not be construed as legal tax or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision. Insightful. Informative. Irreverent. We're ready. 1220 KDOW presents Rob Black and Your Money. Your source for breaking news, market updates, and successful investment strategies for the 21st century. Sounds like a great program. Getting you to retirement in today's market. So let's get on with the show. Taxes, family finance, insurance, the economy, technology, media, and entertainment. Rob is talking about it with you at 800-516-1220. So call in. We'll chat and uh, have some fun. Now to start your day with the latest news and market commentary. Here's Rob Black on the Bay Area's business leader, 1220 KDOW. Good day. Where is the year gone? We're only 20 days through January. That's something that is a recurring theme again and again and again. That time moves faster and faster. And you're going to look back at age 60 and go, whoa. Millions of workers around the world. Let's see. There's butter in my throat. There we go. That's a little bit better. Um, millions of workers around the world are going to hit 60, 65, and they're going to hit retirement. Um, and they're not going to have what they want. So HSBC, a big bank, said the impact of the global economic downturn could be felt for decades by the vast number of people who raided their retirement funds and accumulated debt during the financial crisis. In a study of 16,000 people in global retirement trends, HSBC found that two in five workers stopped to reduce their savings for retirement during the downturn that began in 2007. The situation is particularly bad in the UK and Canada, where retirement savings have been nearly halved as a result of debts or financial constraints, despite the fact that close to 70% of people feel like they will run out of money or not have enough to live on a day-to-day in retirement. 40% of people today are either not saving for retirement or significantly reduce their savings for retirement. And it's just, honestly, it's ignorance. It's, you know, I know people directly who have iPhone 6s and have nothing saved for retirement or so little that it will be gone in under a year in retirement. But they have their iPhone 6. They can watch Friends on Netflix. Every season of Friends is on Netflix? Whoa! Um, <clears throat> so the rising cost of living is a big concern for workers around the world, whether you're in Singapore or France. In France, 60% of workers said the cost of living was rising faster than their income. And you have to do something about it. I know it's easy for me to say because I've done well in my life and my career in income and retirement savings, 
but I did have to sacrifice to do that. I lost all my 20s. I know you're going, oh, poor Rob. And then my 30s turned fun. So much to the point that I married a Playboy model. Like, whoa. Cha-ching. That was fun. Lasted under a year. Humiliating, but fun. Um, so again, this show's really about trying to wake your AWS up and drag you to retirement. Um, a little rest and relaxation out there. We're kind of getting back into the work mode, right? You know, now we're going, okay, MLK, MLK days behind, so that three-day weekend, or if people took a couple days off on the other side of it, four- or five-day weekend. New Year's past us, Christmas has passed us, all the holidays are past us. Oh, we got President's Day coming up. President's Day. The Swiss Central Bank stirred things up in a big way. Last week, 30-year bond yield moved remarkably to an all-time low. That's predicting. Money is predicting that inflation is going to be really stagnant for the next 30 years. The 10-year Treasury, when it's at 1.9%, it's telling you that inflation is going to be really stagnant for the next 10 years. This is worrisome on the level of, you want some inflation. You do. You don't want too much, but some. World Bank cut its global forecast recently. Commodity price action remains very, very volatile. Retail sales declined in December. Major investment banks don't post uh, the best earnings so far. And we're kind of in earnings season. We're more today. Now, from the stock market perspective, you know, with all that going on, you would think that things are in total disarray. Nah. We're, we're hold, hanging in there. Not, not going up, but barely going down. Um, China's fourth quarter GDP was 7.3%, better than expected. Keep in mind, it was one of their lowest readings in 24 years. Where were you 24 years ago? Probably in a better place, I would imagine, with your weight and with your body and your sexuality and all the good stuff in the world. Your ability to eat anything you want at any time. God, I used to love Captain Crunch. And then the 21st century hits and you read labels. And you're like, I can't eat that. As a kid, I loved it. The captain. Oh. Ever want to make a like a TV series where like the Captain Crunch is a real person and gets murdered, and then Boo Berry is a real person and gets murdered, and you kind of figure it all out. It's all about a serial killer. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Um, a whole lot of. Earnings this week. Johnson & Johnson, Delta, Baker Hughes, they all topped expectations this, this morning. Economic data, central bank meetings. You get President Obama's State of the Union address tonight, which I hear is going to be broadcast in Technicolor. Um, you get the World Economic Forum in Davos. Obama's saying, hey, I think we should have higher capital gains taxes for the wealthy. That's not even funny. Good idea. Good idea, but it's not going to happen. Um, and again, the whole idea of like taxing our way out of our problems, it has to be, that's fine. But it also has to be cut with massive cuts in spending. 
Um, and that's our problem, is we could see one side or the other, but we can't see both. Washington's made things uh, worse. Washington has made things worse. And you got into office saying that you're going to help the middle class and started to hang over your legacy that the middle class is definitively worse. Uh, who's to blame? Psh, probably the last four presidents combined. 800-516-1220 to get your calls on the air. It's 800-516-1220 to get your calls on the air. Anything you want to talk about, we can talk about. Um, the Swiss Frank fallout. Ooh. That's tough to play as far as an investment goes. I think it's fair to say that Europe is looking bleak. We're going to hear on Thursday this week from European Central Banker Mario Draghi, who was the villain in the Rocky Three movie. And he told Rocky, I will blake you. I know you're saying that's not who that was. No, that was Mario Von Draghi. I'm pretty sure. So this was a Broadway show. Broadway shows are so lame. Broadway shows appeal to people basically 20 to 40. And then they reset and appeal to people 10 years from now, between the ages of 20 and 40. So they're now between 10 and 30. Did we really need a Rocky Broadway show? The Italian Stallion. Okay. Can we all, for one week, stop playing up our ethnicities? Hey, I'm Italian. I'm a good guy. Ciao. Anytime you see those scooters in the city, <laughs> you don't want to know what's going on in my head. Anyway, uh, big show for you today. Good show for you today. Uh, you can be a part of the show. Drop me an email, rob at robblackshow.com. Or call 800-516-1220. It's 800-516-1220. Hello, it's me, Rob Black. Shake Shack has proven that people will wait in lines for $5 burgers. Just priced its IPO at $16. They want to raise an IPO. Um, found it as a hot dog cart to help support the restoration of Manhattan's Madison Square Park. The company now has 63 outlets in over 30 cities from London to Dubai, boosting sales of 41% in 2013. Now, a lot of the companies that here come public recently have been very U.S.-based. This is a company that's very internationally, uh, more so than the average, you know, 
IPO tied towards restaurants. And again, calling it a restaurant is, I don't know, that's a little bit too much. But casual restaurants have gone public and have done pretty well. Um, El Polo Loco, Noodles, Potbelly, a lot of food companies come in public. In the end, how many food companies do we need? Like, do we need Office Depot and Staples, or do we just need one? Ken Grossman, he's working the taps. 60-year-old doling out samples of Hoptimum, Harvest Single Hop, two Imperial Pale Ales made by Sierra Nevada. 3,300 people paid 65 bucks to attend a beer tasting with 117 breweries recently. And as the owner meets people, he says, it's an honor to meet you. Dude has a book. What's even more important, I don't know what's even more important. Um, <clears throat> Sierra Nevada sold 1 million barrels of beer in 2014, equal to 331 12-ounce bottles, producing $250 million of revenue. So as an owner, he's now worth over a billion dollars based on value to sales and enterprise-valued earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortization. Um, pretty impressive. Billion-dollar franchise. Anyhow, anyway, let's bring in CFP Chad Burton. Welcome in CFP Chad Burton. I'm Rob Black. Uh, Chad, you're a financial planner. People can find you at newfocusfinancial.com, newfocusfinancial.com. In, in my book, I wrote a chapter called Home Equity Loans are for Losers. And the reason I did that was I wanted to point out that home equity loans are basically a line of credit, and you could actually get into trouble with them with, with where you put that money, why you're spending that money. I want to talk a little bit about this because I, I think it's, although not a popular trend today, it is something that people view incorrectly. The home is not a piggy bank. Yeah, and we'll cycle through a trend like that again sometime in the future. You know, we went through a debt bubble. It'll take 10 years, but people forget about it and probably happen again. Um, it's it's one of those things where, first of all, most banks aren't willing to do this anymore. Right, or it's, they cancel the line of credits that are out there. Right, and so if you set it up, it's really for an, uh, an extension of your emergency reserve. So let's say you're in an industry that there's a lot of turnover. So tech sales, for example, a lot of people that are in sales in the tech industry, they jump from company to company and three or four years later, they end up at the same company again. It's kind of like who's the hot shot for the year. So those type of people, rather than having six months worth of emergency reserves, they need to have more like a year's worth of emergency reserves, but that's tough to get to for a lot of families. And when you're trying to get enough into your 401k to max the match, you've got kids, you've got you know, other issues that you're dealing with to, to accumulate that much cash is tough. So I, I would look at it as an emergency reserve um, extension and only use it for an emergency. And again, you and I differ at times because like, I don't like home equity lines at all. Um, you borrow basically and hope a, a meteor doesn't hit your house. And sometimes meteors hit your house. You take out $50,000 and you know, there's an interest on it. Mm-hmm. So you have to you know, outperform that interest. Otherwise, you know, uh, it starts working against you pretty quickly. You assume no other crisis hits. Like you just brought up like it's emergency money for some people, but sometimes emergencies hit back to back to back. And now you have nowhere left to go and suddenly your home is being foreclosed on. So I'm not a big fan of home equity lines. I think we were taught by our parents, like, hey, tap the house when you need money. You know, get a, a refi, get a second mortgage, a third mortgage, things along those lines. Those rules, I don't think they apply today. I think they should be um, really frowned upon and, and feared. Yeah, it's, it's you know, first it was tap the home equity line of credit to to buy tech stocks. You know, remember that? Oh, yeah, I do. <laughs> so that just nailed a lot of people. And then it was turn around tap the equity line to put more into your home, which then fell in value. The only time I like people to take equity out of their home is if they're going to go use it to make another real estate investment. 
okay. you know, where they can take enough money out to put 30% down on another property, have enough positive cash flow to pay both loans. Then that way it's, it's, it's a good overall deal if that family is prepared to do it, meaning you're maxing out your 401ks, you've got years worth of income saved up on the sideline in addition to your emergency reserves so you can deal with vacancies. The ugliest, one of the ugliest financial scams that I've seen out there is when people pull home equity out of their house to buy either stocks from somebody or an annuity or a life insurance product. That is one of the worst scams and the most heavily sold issues out there. And I mean, there's videos all over YouTube about it. Which is interesting that you bring that up because in our industry, we can't use the word scam unless it truly is a scam. I mean, it's something that can get you sued, but a lot of people are being sold, you know, an Amazon bestseller. And it's not a bestseller. It's a guy who does a vanity press of his own book and calls it a bestseller because mm-hmm. it's tough to check those kind of things. Right. And some of them even get on, on, on PBS. And they're telling people to take money out of their home to put into a life insurance product. And it's a, a, a win-win. Like, I hate that. It drives me nuts. My, my problem with home equity lines of credit is people buying cars. Buying stuff that they really shouldn't have bought right. because they're they're like, ooh, I got eighty thousand from the house, and I'm gonna go buy an eighty thousand dollar car when the lifestyle doesn't really make sense for buying an eighty thousand dollar car. Yeah, they use a an, a loan that has a variable interest rate to go out and buy depreciating assets, so you're compounding your your stupidity. I'm with you. That's CFP Chad Burton. You can find him online at chadburton.com. That's chadburton.com, or find him at newfocusfinancial.com. Google and Tesla are considering joining up, <coughs> not Tesla, but Tesla's founder, CEO, Elon Musk, considering working together on getting satellites into space for Internet purposes. Um, so Google's about to make a major investment in Elon Musk's SpaceX. Interesting how they're both companies are very determined that space is something that's important to play with, uh, outer space. Uh, Google can't get anyone to use Google+. Plus. Far fewer than you might imagine. Analytics and visualization charts on Google+, Plus show that just 9% of its 2.2 billion users actively post public content. On Edo, between 4 to 6 million people engage, interact, and post publicly on Google+. Plus. There are about 2.2 billion Google Plus profiles. Of that, about 37% have as their most recent activity or comments on YouTube videos. Another 8% are profile photo changes. Uh, no one's posting. So at what point in time does Google shut it down or do they try to write it out? I'm Rob Black talking all things financial. Don't be shy. Drop me an email, rob at robblackshow.com. It's rob at robblackshow.com. Coming up, I'm going to be talking investing much, much more with Briefing.com's Chief Market Analyst. Take a break here. We'll be right back.
Welcome back in. Rob Black and your money. I'm Rob Black. Startled by how many people aren't ready for retirement. Startled by how many people continue to just put it off. Let's bring in Patrick O'Hare, Chief Market Analyst with Briefing.com. How are you, Mr. O'Hare? Hi, Rob. I'm doing fine. Thank you. Good to be back with you. It's good to have you. You took a little R&R last week. What'd you do? I tried. So, well, I, I dodged out of uh, cold Chicago okay. and uh, went with my wife down to Cancun, Mexico for <laughs> some fun in the sun and uh, definitely had plenty of sun. And now here we are back at it again uh, in cold Chicago and it's kind of a crazy market. I hear you on that. Uh, last week while you were away, the, the whole Swiss franc uh, unbundling happened and I was stunned to read like some hedge funds I think one was as big as $850 million in assets, basically just went under just like that. Um, how does that make you feel when you go on vacation and a big key financial event happens? Yeah, well, it's always, it takes a little bit of um, the uh, one of the R's away. I can't fully relax, I think, when uh, when you see stuff like that happen. And coincidentally, I, just, I happen, I feel like think, big things happen when I go on vacation. So in, in 2008, uh, we had the whole uh, Bear Stearns issue while I was away, too. So, But in any event, when you see things like that, it, it's definitely... You know, it's unsettling, but it's it's a reminder, though, of the risks of playing in a market uh, where you have things that you think are um, immutable, that being, you know, zero percent interest rates at the Federal Reserve and then the, the, the cap on the Swiss franc, and people become so reliant on those things not changing uh, that they take, you know, clearly in the case of that particular hedge fund you're mentioning, they take undue risk. And uh, if something, you know, arises that uh, changes that condition, um, things can unravel in a hurry. And I think that that's one of the lessons, anyway, um, you know, of the last week, essentially, is that I think it probably, if not outright scared people uh, managing money, but it certainly left them with the reminder to probably need to dial back some of that leverage uh, you know, so that they don't get caught in a similar position, because there's just so many moving parts right now around the world that um, that could unsettle things in a hurry. And and one of those things really is is just, I think, uh, the conversation itself. Um, you know, as I was away, I was still keeping some tabs on the market, but it seemed you know the entire strain of commentary was oriented around the idea that things are going to collapse in the stock market, whether it's due to a currency issue or just a stock bubble or, you know, the U.S. slipping into a recession or, you know, anything of that nature. I mean, the entire strain of the commentary was very negative, and it has, it can have that uh, self-enforcing position of leaving investors really spooked and wanting to sell now as opposed to running the risk of being forced to sell later at lower prices. And so we can kind of talk ourselves into a real scary situation as well and something to be mindful of here. But uh, but obviously not a great start to the 2015. And um, certainly we think it's indicative of probably what we're going to see throughout 2015 in terms of the volatility, this, you know, this, this these wide trading ranges and people trying to get a bead on where this market and where the global economy is really headed. Kind of a silly question, not terribly silly, but a little bit. Um, the 10-year Treasury and the 30-year bond from the United States government 
are at incredibly low depressed levels. And I seem to read that, and the financial media seems to read that, as there's not going to be a lot of inflation for the next 10 to 30 years. Is that your read, or is this just kind of a casualty of the VIX and volatility? Because if there's not a lot of inflation, like Goldilocks, we want some. We don't want it to be too hot, but we don't want it to be too cold. We want it. We want some inflation, right. even though inflation is a very, very bad word in a lot of people's mind. Yeah, yeah I think it does certainly uh, reflect that idea that uh, you are not going to have uh, inflation get away from you um, anytime soon. Um, but another contributing factor uh, to take account of is, is also the fact that is, is the interest rate differential uh, relative to other uh, sovereign instruments from other governments. So, you know, while the 10-year yield is, you know, 1.78% right now, uh, I mean, the yield on the German Bund is 0.4, you know. So, um, you know, there's a spread there where it, it still looks comparatively, you know, high. And if you're uh, certainly a European investor and you have the ability to, to take advantage of the, you know, translation of factions of, you know, coming back from the U.S. into, into euros, it's, um, there's some appeal in owning U.S. Treasuries here, uh, and that continues to kind of so – you have a, really a, a confluence of forces, one of which being the idea that inflation is not likely to get out of hand soon. Um, you know, two, you have um, the uh, influence of foreign buyers. Uh, you know, and three, you have just a, a general safe haven uh, aspect kicking in here um, because there's a lot of uncertainty out there. And – um, and the U.S., you know, relatively speaking, looks better than a lot of other areas. And, and it's certainly the treasury market is the largest, most liquid government bond market out there. And so uh, it's become a place to hide. Um, and you might even throw in the idea, really, that uh, potentially you have some, you know, uh, pension funds looking at these treasury securities uh, as, a, as a short-term safe haven, looking to protect some of those uh, equity gains that uh, they've logged over the past several years that have been quite nice and um, it might just be parking there for a bit uh, trying to protect those gains, uh, worried that you might see the equity market uh, you know, trade substantially lower. So a whole lot of forces going on, um, but we're seeing it in the data certainly that inflation is not uh, the issue a lot of people thought it was going to be certainly when the Federal Reserve kicked off its quantitative easing plan. So if we were in Cancun and you were a little bit liquored up, and I was a little liquored up, <laughs> would you tell me we really don't have that much to fear, or would you say that those 10-year and 30 years are really telling us be cautious? And you can just keep uh, it simple. Yeah, you know, look, you know, no one person is, is smarter than the market. I mean, the, the collective nature of the market is, is where the smarts are. And you have to respect what is taking place within the capital markets, um, there's a lot of smart money that's moving into U.S. Treasuries, uh, even though they yield so very little. Um, you know, so something is, something's amiss, and I think that there's, a, you know, enough smart money out there that's worried about what could potentially happen, and is still shell-shocked, frankly, from what did happen <clears throat> with the financial crisis. Um, and so, so when you see moves like that, uh, you can't just dismiss them as uh, as you know wrong-headed moves. Um, you know, there's uh, there's a lot of money you know banking on this notion uh, reflected in the treasury market that 
at the least, uh, economic growth is not going to be that terrific. Um, and there's certainly plenty of money riding out the idea that the volatility we're seeing around the globe is going to probably continue to feed that that safe haven uh, move there. But <clears throat> but just like with equities, you have to realize that uh, you know a lot of that move can unwind in a hurry. You know, we saw it with stocks. It can happen with treasuries. We saw it with treasuries, in fact, okay. not that long ago. And it can happen again. So you just have to be respectful of the action in either direction. But right now, certainly need to be mindful that it's, it might be saying something uh, much bigger in terms of what the growth story is and what people think it's going to be uh, for a while here. I always start my mornings off by reading your page one opening comments. Kind of missed it while you were away, Mr. O'Hare. Um, earnings season, what are you making so far? I think we've seen a couple big financials, uh, Alcoa, big industrial metal company. Any trends, anything you're starting to see at this point in time? Well, the, the, the primary one in the early part, because the financials are out there dominating the headlines, is that you know it's been a tough slog, really, uh, from a trading standpoint for these investment banks. Um, with the volatility in these uh, income, fixed income and commodity markets. Um, and so you haven't been really all that impressed by the earnings we've seen out of the major investment banks um, to this point. Um, and it's certainly concerning to see that the financials are underperforming right now in the early part of the year because I think I might have talked about this with you previously, but if you look at the narrative at the end of 2014 going into 2015, it was that, you know, uh, growth should be picking up, interest rates should be going up, lending activity should be picking up, um, the, the stock market should do reasonably well, IPO and M&A activity should continue to boom. All of those factors in that narrative should have played right into the strengths of the financials, and none of that has unfolded yet in the performance of the financial sector. Um, so it is interesting to see that underperformance, and that would be a key sector to watch, really, I think, as it reflects you know, market sentiment uh, and uh, sentiment as it relates to the economic outlook, not only in the U.S., but globally as well. We've got about a minute left, Mr. O'Hare. Is there anything that you want to touch on that you think is insightful that we failed to touch on so far? Well, the ECB meeting's out, you know, on Thursday, and everyone's expecting a whole lot out of that, uh, uh, out of that policy meeting. You know, I think there's going to be a tremendous amount of volatility around it, but at the end of the day, again, we've talked about this too, I just don't know what the market really thinks the ECB can can ultimately accomplish in terms of stimulating growth with the QE plan, given where you know yields on those sovereign securities already are. So I, I think it's going to be a whole lot of bluster, but I don't think you get a whole lot of bang for the buck coming out of the ECB. Thanks very much. It's Patrick O'Hare, Chief Market Analyst with briefing.com. You can find him online at briefing.com. That's briefing.com. Always a great guest, always great insights. I'm Rob Black.
Welcome in, Rob Black and your money. I'm Rob Black. Honda said something out there today that... I know you're saying Honda. Honda said something out there today that I think was a little bit shocking, um, but kind of right on. They talked about what are called stupid loans. Let that sit in. Let that sink in for uno momentero. A top U.S. executive at Honda Motors said competitors are doing stupid things to boost auto sales, including making seven-year-long car loans that harm buyers. Automakers are increasingly selling vehicles with 84-month 84 84 loans that reduce monthly payments while making it tougher to repay faster than cars lose their value. I mean, do the math, people. If you put 12,000 miles on a car a year, you're talking about almost 90,000 miles by the time it's paid off. And at 90,000 miles, have you had a car lose its clutch? Have you had a car lose its engine? Have your car, you know, go through a massive tire repatch? Like, you've probably done some work on a car or some, you know, pretty significant work. Most people run into some sort of issue. And that's not even talking about, like, getting in a car crash and such. I think that is absolutely spot-on true. Um where a car company will, you know, ring the bell on a, a sale, but the customer's saddled, they're stretched. Um, deliveries are about 16.7 million new cars this year. That's not too shabby. But more than one in four car loans were 73 to 84 months long. That's a long time. <clears throat> And I'm glad Honda's got the courage to say something about it. I mean, maybe the guy's going to get fired today. I don't know. But uh, I think you get the idea. Some other stories of note today. Las Vegas screwed up the point spread big time on the Super Bowl. There's no favorite to win the big game, but it didn't start out that way. And that could spell disaster for the Vegas sports books. Shortly after the Patriots completed their destruction of the Colts, the Seahawks opened up as a three-point favorite. Now, 24 hours later, the line fell all the way to a pick'em. Point spreads are designed not to predict the winner. Rather, the purpose of a point spread is to find a number where you get equal amounts of bets on both sides. When that happens, Vegas wins, as losing bets typically have to pay an extra 10%. $100 bet actually costs you about $110 if you lose. So in the case of the Super Bowl, about 80% of the bets initially were on the Patriots. Um, fascinating to see. What's even more fascinating about this is that it's a money story for sure. The big swing in the early action is typically done by the more seasoned and often professional gamblers making big bets uh, versus, you know, quote-unquote, Joe Public. Smarter gamblers felt the open line with the Seahawks' favor was a terrible line and immediately put a ton of money on the Patriots, including at least one six-figure bet. Um, God, can you imagine putting all that money on a game? There's some things that I, I stop and say, let's imagine. Like, let's imagine you and I threw it on a dollar on a lottery ticket. 
and it comes back $250 million. What would we do, you and me? Same thing with a football game. Could you imagine throwing down $100,000 on a football game or more? be a pretty rough game to watch, especially if your team's losing. And uh, for this, you bet on the Packers last week, brutal. Brutal game to choke. I've decided I'm not going to watch the Super Bowl this year because the two teams I hate the most, any team that Bill Belichick coaches and Tom Brady plays on, you know, jeez. Are you kidding me? Talk about a wealth of riches. Giselle Boonchin. Giselle Boonchin. Uh, Giselle Boonchin. And then the Seahawks are just, they're annoying. So, so no Super Bowl for me this year. I will not partake. You should, do not and should not invite me to your Super Bowl party because I will not come. Very sad. Yes, I know. So one of the things I dedicate on this show is to like really try to help you see how money is and some of the thoughts. President Barack Obama is going to give the State of the Union address tomorrow, and he's going to call for higher taxes on capital gains. And that could change the way people hold stocks long-term and or don't. It could change where they decide to invest and or not. Facebook says that they add over $200 billion to the global economy. They've got 1.3 billion users of the social network. Facebook says that it would rank as the world's second most populous nation if it were a country. Its users may populate only a virtual country, though. Facebook says it generates a lot of real economic activity. $227 billion of economic activity and 4.5 million jobs. Now, this report that came out of Deloitte and Touche says that businesses that maintain pages on Facebook, as well as the mobile apps and games that consumers play on Facebook, measures all sorts of economic activity. Um, consumers donated $100 million for research into a sclerosis um, ice bucket challenge. So Facebook's autoplay video ads were a key factor to that. Um, so it's, a, it's an interesting company to watch. I like it on weakness. 800-516-1220 to get your calls in the air. It's 800-516-1220 to get your calls in the air. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. Quick headlines. YouTube's going to have its own halftime show for the Super Bowl. I don't know how many people realistically will log off their television and log into their computer and watch the halftime show, but a bunch of the YouTube stars will be doing it. And again, the YouTube stars you've, you've never heard of. People like Freddie Wong and Rhett and Link and Toby Turner. Who? Um, these are people who make millions of dollars having shows on YouTube. Harley Morenstein. Who? Who dat? 
Oh my, or is that tonight? Tuesday night. So that'd be tonight. And it's going to be a different stock market tomorrow. It's going to be heavily tied towards taxes. Republicans will laugh at, and probably nothing will ever get done. With that said, other big headlines of note out there today include home builder sentiment slides, a point in January to 57. It'd be nice if the stock market and home real estate would take a breather um, because it can't go up forever without creating problems. Facebook says they add over $200 billion to the world economy. Very interesting. Google's in talks to buy a mobile payments company called SoftCard. Uh, think Apple Pay. Google wants to do something very, very similar. Sierra, Sierra, not Sierra, Sierra Nevada. I've been drinking. Founder Grossman has become a billionaire selling pale ales. Um, he's the third billionaire. No, he's the third beer billionaire. Jim Cook, founder of Sam Adams, um, and Dick Yingling. Um, big fortunes. Big, big fortunes. I once interviewed Jim Cook uh, from Boston Beer, and he was trashed at 8 in the morning. Man after my own heart. This guy Grossman, he used to fix bicycles to make ends meet, and sold home brewing equipment in a Chico store. Nice story. Nice story, huh? For you bicycle repair people out, people out there. Um, headline, not shocking news, but young people are willing to pay more for quality food. What That has to get ingrained in your head so you can become a better investor. You can find me online at 8, uh, robblack.com. That's robblack.com. Think about doing a musical of my life. Because I think musicals are the lowest form of entertainment next to radio shows. So why not combine the two, right? And I'll, do, I'll go like, Midnight. And the kitty cats are all sleeping. I'll just talk, sing, and um, I'll become a big Broadway hit. Oh, Robert, I think you just killed my favorite song of all time. <laughs> His favorite song's Memories? That's shocking. Uh, with that said, let's bring in CFP Chad Burton. Joining me now, CFP Chad Burton. Chad Burton is a financial planner with New Focus Financial. Coming in today to talk a little bit about long-term care insurance. Let's start with what is long-term care? Well, long-term care insurance, and, and for the record, I don't sell long-term care insurance. Okay, that's I, good. You know, fee-based financial planning, but I'm a huge believer in it. I started in this business at a pretty young age with my grandfather, who had a lot of older clients. Right. And about two years into the business, it seemed like the phone was ringing almost every week. I'd get a call from a husband or a wife saying, they've gone into a nursing home, they've got Alzheimer's, uh, you know, how am I going to pay for this? It's back then was even three or $4,000 a month. Now you're approaching five or six. In the Bay Area, you can see nursing home costs as high as 10 for a, a month for right. skilled nursing facility. Which, do the math, that's $100,000 a year. Yeah, 120. So the average person, once they go into a nursing home, first of all, once you hit about 70, there's about a 60% chance you're going in. Okay. And the average stay is three years. So that includes the people that go in for 10 years with dementia and just, you know, and that's the, that's the killer of the portfolio. Yeah. And then there's those that go in for six months and have a stroke and die or, or you know, whatever. It's, it's the average stay in America is about three years. And Medicare doesn't cover it. If you, if you go through the right steps and you end up – 
in a hospital for three days and within 30 days. There's all these rules to yeah. get any kind of a, a short-term coverage from Medicare. So that long-term, it's up to you. Okay. you either, you're either going to – you've got a couple of options. You can either pay for yourself. That means you've saved more than enough for retirement. So the person that, that's able to self-insure is those people that are 65, and they're able to live off of you know, maybe 2 to 3% of their portfolio, and that's more than enough. Right. They can probably self-insure. There's middle America, which they're retiring and they're having to live off of 4 or 5% of their portfolio at 65. They need the long-term care insurance the most. And then there's those that haven't saved enough. They're going to go on Medicare or Medicaid, rather, and it's called Medi-Cal in California, which means to get that coverage, not only it's typically not the kind of care you'd really want for yourself or your parents, but you've got to spend down to 2000 bucks, and only a certain amount of your home is now protected as an asset as well. So... The, the biggest thing about long-term care insurance is it actually helps you stay out of a nursing home. If you have an event, you, have, you lose the five activities of daily living. Let's right. say it's dressing or eating or continence, whatever. They'll pay for somebody to come to your house and take care of you. It helps you stay in your home. Right. And tell me a nursing home that you've, like, that you've been in and you oh, great food, great people. This is where I want to be in retirement. No, I'd rather have a wheelchair ramp built at my house so I can stay there. And right? the, the, the parent that you put in that old folks' home, they're not happy, and they're, they're, they're bitter, and they're pissed about it. So it's a lose-lose scenario. So long-term care, just so people know, my grandmother, she had Alzheimer's disease for five years, and it was horrific watching mm-hmm. her die. Uh, did you know, like, if you don't get out of bed, like, your foot, your bones become so frail, they just collapse? Mm-hmm. Your yeah. arms start to curl up towards your heart because that's just age. Like, you just sit in there waiting to die. Bed sores and everything else. It's ugh. My mother has had a couple strokes, and she's been in um, long-term care three times in the last five years. So it, this is a real issue. For me, I don't know because I'm, I'm going to live forever, Chad. You know, it's, that's the, that's way the, the people that need it. You know, if you've got fam- you go. more family history of people just having a massive cholesterol issues and they have a heart attack and die right? versus if I get a client and they have both parents went in with dementia or Alzheimer's, right? Um, even the wealthy ones that can do the, the 1% to 2% of income and, and be completely fine, yeah. what happens is, is they get to that point in time and somebody else, like a kid, is making the decision for them on care. Right. And the kid's worried about their inheritance. They're thinking, oh, dad's got Alzheimer's. He doesn't even know where he's at. I'm going to put him in this house where he's sharing a room with somebody else so I can inherit more money. So even wealthy people might want to look at long-term care insurance to take the financial piece of the health care decision yeah. out of the mix. It's really an estate planning piece as well. And you can write that type of instruction into your trusts. So with that, with that said, do poor people need to buy long-term care? Um, you know, it... You know what like I mean. Poor people poor can't people. afford it. I mean, it's yeah. it's kind of one of those things where you're where you're looking at costs of two hundred and fifty dollars a month and up. Yeah. If you buy the stuff, it's you know early. Okay. It's more if you buy it later in life. Four to five thousand a month. Oh yeah, if you're seventy five or eighty. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it gets to the point. You know, you've got to get it purchased typically by sixty five, sixty six. So in the get to, you don't need you don't need long term carriages. <laughs> Poor people don't need it because the poor they can't afford it. Too old, you can't afford it. It's it's your your risk is too high. You haven't paid into the pool long enough, and don't think that it might. You know, most of the time when you're going to buy long term care insurance, um, the agents say, well, rates aren't likely to go up, but really they are. Because okay. an insurance company, the only way they can raise rates is if they can go to the state and say, look, we've had higher than expected claims. We need to raise the rates, and the state will let them do that. So that could happen as well. Talking retirement issues and more with certified financial planner Chad Burton. You can find him at newfocusfinancial.com. That's newfocusfinancial.com. And I'm Rob Black. You can find me online at robblack.com. That's robblack.com.
Welcome in. Rob Black and your money. I'm Rob Black talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. Thanks for listening to the show. I mean that from seriously the bottom of my heart. Anything that you ever want to talk about, we can talk about. I'll go through some emails a little bit later. You can drop me an email, rob at robblackshow.com. It's rob at robblackshow.com. Some of my emails are downright hilarious because they show me how crazy people are on this planet. I'll read one of those for sure. Um, but here, right here, right now, let's talk a little real estate. Welcome in to a moment with Shakespeare. Macbeth once said, to get points or not to get points. Okay, so that's not true. But that's a question that people have. To be or not to be, another question they have is, should I buy points when I get a mortgage? When I get a loan, should I pay money to get a lower cost loan? It, I mean, that almost sounds like a scam. That almost sounds too good to be true. It's an odd concept that you have to pay to lower your rate. Points, paying for points. Pay, uh, point is equal to a percentage of your loan amount. So if you're paying one point, that's 1%. If it's $400,000 loan, that's $4,000 extra. So if, But if paying that point drops your rate by a quarter percent and you save $150 a month, divide 4000 by 150 and that's how many months it takes for you to recoup those costs. So if you keep it longer than that, those months, let's say it's 33 months, and you plan on keeping that house for seven years, 84 months, you're going to benefit every month after that. So it's an investment into your loan. Um, a lot of people use uh, points when rates are going up or if it's in a purchase and the seller's giving them some concessions because on a purchase, all of your costs are out of your pocket, the down payment plus your closing costs. So the best way to get some additional costs is either from the rate, which is the opposite of paying points, or from the seller. So if the seller's giving you some concessions in cash, you can use that to pay points, which pays off over the long term. So somebody else is paying you you for having a lower rate. I recently got an email from someone who was going through a refi, and he says, I've never paid points. And that was interesting because I was like, I've always paid points. And I, I look at it as buying them. It's buying a cheaper loan. And if I'm going to be in the house or if I'm going to have a rental for more than two, three years, typically the math is going to work out that it's worth it, especially in low interest rate environments. So the, you're getting lower interest rates. Right. And the people who don't pay points are actually at a higher rate than if they actually paid some costs. So th- this brings me to um, my issue I have with banks and other kinds of brokers and bankers that don't give options out. They're looking at the mass amount of people out there looking to refinance or purchase a house and saying, oh, we're going to give you low costs. In reality, they may not be doing the right service to this borrower when they should have paid a point, and it would have saved them money on a longer term. So they're not really qualifying. They're looking at those emotions, of, uh, and they're looking at, at a formula that says, if we advertise this, we're going to get more return on our uh, on our clients. So make sure that when you do look at a loan, look at all of the options. As a matter of fact, the new rules that came out last year make brokers uh, explain that if you paid points, this would be your lowest rate. If you don't pay points, this is the rate. And by the way, I'm choosing this rate. So it's called a, it's part of the anti-steering rule where we're not steering you into a product that's making you, us more money and costing you more money. So be very careful about somebody who says no points. That also means you're taking a higher rate. I always find it um, intimidating, the process of getting a loan, because at some point in time, you look at the cost, you look at how much you're borrowing, you're looking at how long it's going to take to pay off. So that's the area that I think most people talk themselves out of points, and I really, really want people to run both scenarios. Uh, Because, yes, when you look at that that final sheet of how much stuff costs and how many pieces of paper you're going to have to sign, 
you know, I've paid attorneys to sign for me because I don't like mortgages, mortgage paperwork that much. I'm just like, you go sign for me. Um, you get it done. Um, well, I guess what I'm trying to say here is don't get intimidated by the process and know that points, generally, in my opinion, are a good thing to consider. Uh, if you think you're going to be moving the next year or two, no. But then again, if you think you're going to be moving the next year or two, a 30-year mortgage isn't appropriate for you either. Right, and you could do the same thing by getting an arm, uh, like a five-year arm. If you're going to leave in two years, get a five-year arm or a three-year arm. You're going to get a lower rate to begin with and then do a no point, and your rate's lower as if you were to pay points on a 30-year. So but that freaks people out because what if I can't sell the property in three to five years on the arm and I can't refinance, and I can't, and the rates go right. like oh the rate oh the rates went higher. I'd be like people freak out. Yep. And uh, we're all gonna die. <laughs> Earth is gonna go hurtling in the sun at some point in time, and I just don't think life. Aren't is we getting thing. closer to the sun every year? I now you're freaking me out. You're listening to Tony Mendez. You can find him at BayAreaLoanSource.com. That's BayAreaLoanSource.com. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. Thanks for listening to the show, as always. If you have any questions, drop me an email, rob at robblack.com. It's rob at robblack.com. Um, <clears throat> how much do you need to retire, I think, is probably one of the bigger questions that I hear out there. You know, not what do I, what do I invest in is pretty big, too. During the past bull markets, a lot of Americans hit retirement. They got the nest egg um, just as quickly as they, they built up that nest egg. They can start spinning it down pretty fast, too. And you know, any sort of panic selling in the stock market could ruin you. Um, if you need $70,000 a year to meet expenses and pay taxes, and if your Social Security and pension come hits about $30,000 a year, you got to come up with $40,000 a year from your nest egg. So a good rule of thumb is to have um, 10 to 20 times your income in retirement before you retire, in, of income in retirement. Um, so you're going to need a good million dollars to generate 40000 um, and to protect you from downturns. You never want to draw down more than 4%. When you start doing that, you start making mistakes. Now, if you're obese, maybe you do want to take bigger drawdowns because uh, you think you're going to die. But I wouldn't count on that. Um, then again, I guess let's look at 90-year-old people. How many of them are obese? Probably not many is the right answer. Or maybe I'm just not looking at enough 90-year-old people. So... Um, 10 to 20 times your income before you retire. That's pretty humbling, huh? So until you're at five times your income, you really haven't saved enough for retirement. You're not even close. You're not even the ballpark. 800-516-1220 to get your calls in the air. It's 800-516-1220 to get your calls on the air. Just realized, not the best day on the market, but that's okay. I'm not stressed by that. Some days I go the whole day without giving market updates. Fascinating how that works. 800-516-1220 to get your calls in the air. It's 800-516-1220. Again, I will check emails this break, and uh, we'll try to hit a couple of them before the show ends. Rob at robblackshow.com. It's rob at robblackshow.com. We'll take a break here. I'll be right back. Give us Rob Black and your money. I'm Rob Black.
Thanks for listening to the show. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. We're in earnings season. Talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. Anything that you want to talk about, we could talk about. I got some emails, and uh, I'm going to throw one out for you. And you tell me. Um, this one was, let's see. Okay. My wife and I are in our early 30s. We are at above milestone portfolio balances. I'm not a most long-term investor who doesn't fear pullbacks. Congratulations. He's saving a lot of money. He's ahead of targets. He's non-emotional. Stock portion of his portfolio matches recommendations for large, small, mid-domestic international funds. I've been increasing my bond allocation now that I'm in my 30s. I do not pick, monitor individual stocks or try to time anything. All perfect. He bought some commodities. Um, and commodities have fallen hard and fast. So he wants to know, should he be sticking with commodities or not? Tough answer. Uh, first and foremost, there is no right answer. I think that's one of those things that you have to throw out there. When you take a look at commodity funds, in this case, he picked what are called the Power Shares Commodity Tracking Index ETF. I'm not a fan of Power Shares in any way, shape, or form, period. So automatically, I'm not going to like what he's trying to do. And the shares have gone from 32 down to about 16 in the last three years. I don't like anything that uses leverage. Um, PowerShares ETF called DBC. It seeks to track positive or negative the level of optimum yield diversified commodity index success return. It does this by not only investing in commodities but in options. Heavily tied towards oil, gas, um, crude, Gold, silver, aluminum, zinc, copper, wheat, soybeans, and sugar. Cost is relatively cheap. Um, you know, ultimately my thought is it's probably a little too late to sell. If it's outside, <clears throat> if it's outside of a IRA or 401k and it's a regular account, you maybe want to harvest some of your losses either by selling it and waiting 31 days to buy it back, and or selling it and buying something similar, like an oil fund, just in case it rallies and you don't want to miss that. Um, as far as his comments about having bonds, I'm not a big fan of bond funds. Um, I know they have a use, but I don't like using them. Um, I prefer individual bonds. Commodities, like I said, are a little bit of a tougher call because no one expects commodities to roar back in the next two to six months. So you have to kind of have a loser in your portfolio. You have to feel comfortable with that. And you, I would say only hold it if you are going to buy more. So you have to have some determination that you feel comfortable with it. I'd be cautious on that one. Um, it fell far and hard and fast. Now, again, in your early 30s, will there be enough inflation? Take a look at the gasoline prices. And this is one of the things that's always freaking me out about commodities. Yes, there's more people on the planet today than there were back in the 70s, but... I remember when gas was two bucks, <clears throat> and it went to four bucks, then it went back to two bucks, then it went back to four bucks, and now it's two and change. 
And that's over 30 years. So I don't see a lot of appreciation there. If your fund is giving you a dividend, there's some. But in this case, the PowerShares Commodity Tracking ETF does not. So I'm going to say pass on that one. But again, that's me. I think it's too late to sell. I think you should consider a tax strategy if it's an opportunity for you. So I got an email from Dave. <clears throat> Guy found, he goes, found a dream ride used. And get this, black on black. Omen, 2013 Tesla with 16,000 miles to $78,000. Just a few of your Apple shares. Laugh out loud. Check it out. Antioch Hyundai looks bad. Um, Istanbul in May. Booked. Could you talk about your time in Turkey? What's the 411 for? First timer. Timer spelled with two M's. Get this less than a K for a round trip starting SFO nonstop soon. Talk a bullet train to the coast to hang out. We'll see. And yes, Mr. Robber. $1,500 will still go into my TSP account. Good day. Your street walking man. Mail bears me, but that's just a little too random for me. I'm going to be honest with you. That's just a little bit too random. Um, other stories of note today. Google's going to buy a, consider buying mobile payments company SoftCard. That could help Google with their largest U.S. wireless carriers to battle Apple with its new Apple Pay service. The deal value could be around about $100 million. Um, Honda warned about stupid auto loans. I found this a great story. He said Honda said that automakers are selling 84-month loans that reduce monthly payments, but they're 84-month loans. Um, that's a seven-year commitment. I remember when you would buy a car with a three-year commitment, a four-year commitment, a five-year commitment. Now we're up to a seven-year commitment. You have to say no to that one. Uh, value investor Starboard is urging Staples to merge with Office Depot. I don't care about this in particular, other than to say big box retail is struggling, and as an investor, you need to know that. Any big box retailer that you play with, struggling. Porn industry is a $97 billion industry globally. doesn't make you just scratch your head and go, whoa. It's about 10 to $12 billion inside the United States. Shake Shack set their price range for an IPO, 14 to $16 a share. These stocks have done very, very well. They only have 63 restaurants around the world. How many can they grow? Wall Street likes a revenue story. I'm Rob Black. Find me online at robblack.com. That's robblack.com. The views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of the Wall Street Business Network, this station, its management, owners, or advertisers, and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.